I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm uh, chapter 9. So we continue our way through the Psalter, uh, the first Sunday evening of every month. Somewhat lengthier psalm than we've seen in the past uh, few months, uh, but uh, it is uh, worth taking the time to consider it still. Psalm chapter 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, and in the net they hid their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known, he has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands." The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word and ask that as we consider uh, the goodness that comes from your uh, throne, uh, that you would turn our attention uh, to the justice uh, that you bring your people. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. What is justice? I think it's an important question. It's a question that you see asked throughout the ages. You even read the opening chapters of Plato's Republic. It's a question uh, that is focused on even in some of the earliest works that we have. You know, I think many of us are familiar with those kind of cheeky acrostic books that we have for children or those memory devices used to teach us something on a particular topic. I remember uh, as a kid learning what joy means with the little acrostic you learn in Sunday school, right? Jesus first, other second, yourself last. Or you think about uh, when it comes to prayer, the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S-T, A-C-T-S. Yeah, there's not an extra T there. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. These are nice little memory devices that help us think through particular topics 
uh, in a kind of comprehensive manner. It's, it's a nice memory aid that's good not just for little kids, but also for older people. You, you attend, uh, you know, your first week on the job at a new place of employment, you might learn the ABCs of safety regulations. Uh, or again, you're giving, uh, uh, you're teaching a, a, a class or, or you're reading to your kid at night and you get a book on uh, animals. You get the ABCs of animals. So you get A is for alligator, B is for you know, bandicoot, C is for capybara. It's just a, a nice little way to teach kids things uh, about animals. Well, we find that this is a device that's used in poetry as well, and something that we see uh, in several of the Psalms. I think the most common example uh, that we would all be familiar with is Psalm 119, the longest psalm in all of Scripture, the longest chapter in all of Scripture. Uh, 22 sections. Each section begins with one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a nice little memory device as the psalmist contemplates on a single topic. In Psalm 119, that's the word of God. But here in Psalm 9 and in Psalm 10, we see this same acrostic type pattern that's formed, something that's kind of lost in translation as, we, uh, as the Bible's translated from Hebrew to English. Uh, but what the psalmist is doing here is, uh, throughout these verses, in Psalm 9, he uses the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet in an ongoing acrostic, and then in Psalm 10, uh, the final 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet that focuses on a single theme, that of the justice of God. These two t- psalms are to be taken and read, I think, in many ways together, I think, under the Spirit's inspiration, there's a reason why these two psalms are put together. This evening, we'll just focus on Psalm 9 as it gives us the first basic installment of thinking what the justice of God is. And I want us to take the vantage point, the perspective as, as us being little children and our Heavenly Father reading to us from His book the ABCs of God's justice. What is it that we are to learn about the justice of God? Particularly, God's justice in a fallen world. Uh, So tonight, I think it would be rather silly to try to break this psalm up into 11 parts for each of the 11 uh, letters, uh, the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So we're still going to just try to break it up into three broader sections. First, we'll consider the matter of justice in verses 1 to 12. Secondly, the matter of salvation in verses 13 to 16. And then finally, the matter of judgment in verses 17 to 20. So justice, and what we'll see is that justice comprises itself in two basic parts, that of salvation and that of judgment. Well, David begins here with a song of praise and proclamation to celebrate God for his wonderful work of redemption. Uh, You see that here in uh, the opening verses, to praise God for all of his wonderful deeds. This language here is language that is used back in the Exodus, where the Lord attests to the marvels and wonders that he tells Moses that he will display in delivering the nation from 400 years of slavery. And so whenever you see the psalmist or any portion of Scripture sing of the wonderful works of God, we should have the Exodus sitting in the back of our minds. He begins by saying this, Let me hymn a song of praise to my God, and let me herald his marvelous wonders of old. Two facets here, that of praise and that of proclamation. Uh, gives us the, uh, the substance of a worship service. 
This is something that is highly personal. It's not simply the redemption of the nation in generations past. But here David says, let me recount the things the Lord has done for me. This ongoing salvation, reminding us that the Lord's salvation is from age to age. And in verse 3, we see a general habitual principle that is set forth before the people of God. As the psalmist says, when my enemies stagger and flee, it is because you, O Lord, have done so. Notice how the psalmist here focuses once more on the name of God. You recall last month when we looked at Psalm 8, how majestic, O Lord, is your name in all the earth. And we saw in that last psalm how Psalm 8 is really a hymn that attests to the new creation, as Hebrews chapter 2 puts it, that it is to the Son that the Lord, the Father, has subjected the world to come. So how majestic, O Lord, is your name in all the earth, that where the name of God dwells, there is his presence presence and all of his promises. Psalm chapter 8, how majestic is that name that inaugurates the world to come, but now Psalm 9 announces that that same name brings an end to the wicked of this world. This is the justice of God. We'll see here that the psalmist employs that word justice. It's translated a number of different ways uh, in uh, various translations. It might be justice. In some translations, sometimes it's judgment. But regardless of how it's translated, that word happens four, it appears four times in the psalm. In verse four twice, in verse seven, in verse 16. It is, in fact, one of the most common, uh, most used words in this particular psalm. We have to ask ourselves, what is justice? And we're given uh, uh, kind of the basic, again, think of this as one of those ABC books for children. Uh, here's, here's a kernel of what God's justice is, verse 4. It consists in upholding the legal claim of those who have been oppressed. And it also comes with judgment upon the guilty. In this context, the wicked are the nations. Where there is goyim, it's a word that's used to describe the pagan nations of the world. They also are mentioned four times in the psalm. The Lord judges the nations not because they are non-Israelites. This is not kind of an ethnic, kind of racial thing that the psalmist is bringing out. Rather, it is, if you look down at verse 17, it is because the nations are not mindful of the one true God. They have forgotten the true God. And so the psalmist keeps driving home this point that God's justice is not restricted to a single ethnic community. His justice is not restricted to one particular tongue, tribe, or race. Justice, in fact, is not even culturally constrained. There is, in fact, absolute truth because there is absolute justice. Psalm 9 reminds us that the Bible knows nothing of the moral relativism that is found in the modern Western world. God sits on a throne of justice. He declares what is right and what is wrong for the nations. And those who act wickedly will be judged. There is neither nation nor tribe that will escape the justice of God. His righteous judgment is 
against evil. Verse 5, there is coming a day when wickedness will be fully blotted out of the earth. That, that, that word there, to be fully blotted out, harkens us back to the language of the flood, where the Lord looks on the sin of the human race and says, I will blot out their names and their memory forever. It's the same language the Lord says when he speaks of the Amalekites as Israel goes uh, through uh, the, the wilderness, when the Lord says, I will blot out the names of the Amalekites forever, and they will not be remembered. And it's that same word that the psalmist uses in Psalm uh, 51, when it says that the Lord blots out our transgressions, and he remembers them no more. Blotted out. This is the language of the flood. When the judge of the whole earth will judge the world at the last day. He judged the world that then was by water, and as Second Peter 3 reminds us, he will judge this world by fire. In verse 7, we see really the centerpiece. Verses 7, I think, through 9, uh, 7 through 10, really the centerpiece of this psalm that speaks of God's enthronement on high. The Lord sits enthroned forever. It reminds us of, of the end of that song at the end of the song of Moses, Exodus chapter 15, doesn't it? When Israel's been redeemed by blood, they've been led through the Red Sea, and the people of God shout in the wilderness, the horse and his rider, the Lord is thrown into the sea, and they proclaim the wonderful works of God, and it culminates in this, Exodus 15, verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And here the psalmist says the same thing. The Lord sits enthroned forever and ever. The king of justice has taken his royal seat. He will judge not just his people, but the whole world in righteousness. I think it's something that is very discouraging for all of us when we look at the news and hear of corrupt judges who can be bribed or incompetent judges who can be swindled. What a relief it is, particularly for the afflicted, to know that here is a judge who can neither be bought off nor ripped off. Here is not a God who can be swindled. Here is a God who cannot be hoodooed. One who cannot be bribed uh, to let the guilty go. The Lord does not wink at sin, and so He is a stronghold for those who have been afflicted and oppressed. It does not matter how powerful the wicked are. If you look here in verse 8, He judges the world with righteousness, that word there quite literally means dry land. It's a word that's used elsewhere to speak of kind of those cultivated civilizations. You think of the great empires of old that may have had the greatest art in the world or the greatest poetry or the greatest literature or the greatest army. It might be civilized according to worldly standards. But in the eyes of the Lord, those who forget the Lord or barbarians with respect to piety. Those who forget what true righteousness is. And so we are told that God sits enthroned. This is good news for those who have been afflicted by those in power in a fallen world. We have a just judge who will hear our 
case and who will execute our cause. John Calvin, in his commentary on Psalm 9, puts it like this, that whatever fury bursts forth, his enemies can never drag God down from his seat. In other words, nothing can take the Lord off of his holy throne. His throne is established, and so it is impossible for him ever to abdicate the office and the authority of judge. In majestic glory, he reigns to govern the whole world in righteousness. Verse 7 tells us the Lord is seated on high, and he has established his throne for a purpose, that he might establish true justice in the earth, to judge all the nations fairly, equitably, with uprightness, not according to the fading fads or the changing tides of public opinion, but according to his unchanging and unadulterated righteousness. His righteousness which is revealed to his people in the moral law, the Ten Commandments. So true justice is we're being uh, uh, teased out here in very simple form, again in this Hebrew acrostic, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. True justice consists in these two things, the condemnation of the wicked, the vindication of the of the righteous. It brings clarity to a world that has been thrust into turmoil in an age where everybody longs for righteousness, even when so many do not even know what true righteousness really is. Yet to all who have been truly oppressed, the Lord is to them an impregnable fortress. He is, verse 9, a stronghold in times of trouble. As Luther's old hymn puts it, a mighty fortress is our God. He is a stronghold to those who know the sweetness of his name. Verse 10, that very name that heralds the coming age and judges the wicked of this present age. These are the ones, those who know the name of God and the promises he brings put their trust in him. Here we have before us a God who is not sitting up in the sky devoted to his own pleasure, uh, unconcerned for the plight of mankind. Here we have a God who is seated in justice as he exercises great and tender care for the things that happen on this earth. Think of the prophets of old, that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro looking for the righteous, to see those whose heart is set on the Lord, to those who look to the Lord, He is their mighty fortress. And He will call the nations to account. The psalmist here uses rather stark language, calling the Lord the avenger of blood. I think one immediately thinks of Abel. Genesis chapter 4. Abel, who is unjustly murdered by his brother in an open field, and the Lord comes and he confronts Cain. He says, Cain, what have you done? Abel's blood cries out from the ground for justice. The Lord is the avenger of blood. In the Old Testament, if somebody's relative was murdered, according to Moses, the nearest kinsman was obligated to hunt down that murderer and bring him to justice. And he was known as the avenger of blood. And yet here in verse 11, it says that the Lord himself 
is the avenger of blood. What is, what is David getting at? He's saying, for those who have been wronged, your nearest hope, your closest out of the one who holds the most sympathy towards you is the Lord God of heaven and earth. So the psalmist continues to say over and over again throughout the Psalms, he is the redeemer of the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow, those who have no resource for protection from the wicked. The Lord himself pleads their case and defends their just cause. He will not forget their cry, though their cry comes under the weight of persecution or plague or drought. He is our shelter in the time of drought or storm, verse 10. And so just as the psalmist sings of God's redeeming work as judge in verses 1 and 2, he now encourages the people of God to do the same. You see that here in verses 11 and 12. There's kind of a a repeated refrain. Look in verse 1 and 2. I will sing of the praise of God for all of his wonderful deeds. Now there is a command that's issued to the whole nation of the people of God. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. That here is a king who judges the world in righteousness. But when we make it to verse 13, there is a shift in tone. For the first 12 verses, uh, David has been speaking uh, as a kind of a timeless truth that the Lord, for kind of for the first six or seven verses, has been faithful to previous generations. And then verses 7 to 12, he says, and now uh, the, the Lord has been faithful to me in times past personally. But now in verse 13, a new threat faces the king of Israel. David has already spoken of God's redeeming justice in his works of yesterday. In verses 7 to 12, he attests to the consummate justice that will be meted out on the last day. But there is the question of what about today? If we claim that the Lord reigns, why does wickedness prevail? This is a question that we see uh, the, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 2 uh, say. How is it that if Christ has ascended on high and has taken his seat as the messianic heir, why is it that wickedness continues to abound? It's the question we see throughout so many of the Psalms that will be hit from a number of different angles as we continue to make our way through the Psalter. Why does evil continue to exist when the Lord, we confess, reigns? You, you feel that tension, don't you? It's, it's how can we cling to this confession of faith? How can we hold both to be true? The great hope that the Lord reigns and yet the recognition that evil exists in the world. So David cries out to the Lord for justice. Here, the wicked hate the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah, and they afflict him. They lead him down to the gates of death. It says here in verse 13. But here we are also told that the Lord does not overlook this act of injustice. He lifts up, he exalts the Lord's anointed king from the gates of death and brings him to the gates of the heavenly Zion so that the Christ should sing of the Lord's everlasting life that is freely given. Here we begin to see imprints of the very thing that is given its fullest picture in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What is it that Jesus tells his disciples on the way to Emmaus, three days after Jesus has been crucified, died, and buried? The disciples don't recognize Jesus, and yet Jesus continues to talk to them. He says, don't you realize that all the Psalms attest to the suffering and exaltation, to the humiliation and the glory of the Son of God. And here we are given a taste and a glimpse of that here. Here is uh, the Lord who has lifted up the Lord's anointed Messiah from the gates of death and has brought him in to the gates of Zion. You think of what Hebrews chapter 5 says, speaking of the true Messiah, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus That in the days of his flesh, in other words, in the days of Christ's ministry here on earth, he offered up both prayer and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. So that now risen and exalted, the Messiah exclaims, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And here we have the psalmist giving us a picture of Christ, declaring to the assembly that the Lord will vindicate the righteous. He lifts up his people from the gates of death. What is true for Christ is true for those who have been united to Christ. Though the nations took counsel together against the Lord and his Messiah, the cross was the picture of Christ's victory more than it was his defeat. It is the foolishness of God that trumps the wisdom and power of this age. So like a hunter who has fallen into his own snare trap, verse 15, the wicked fall by their own doing. Such is the justice of God. Such is the wisdom of God that he works all things. uh, That though the wicked plan many schemes, they fall into the trap that they have laid for the righteous. It happens over and over and over again. Calvin puts it like this, God acts as judge when he snares the wicked in their own evil. When this happens, it is self-evident that this is God's doing. It cannot be attributed to mere coincidence. As often as we witness this in our lives, let this confirm our faith. It happens to all the wicked, and yet God's justice is seen supremely in the vindication of his Son. So I think it's rather fitting that the superscript of the psalm, it says here, the top of Psalm 9, to the choir master according to the Muth Labane. If you uh, use the uh, New American Standard, uh, it's typically what I, I end up using, I typically don't read that from the pulpit, it, it notes here that that phrase there, it's probably a musical term, but quite literally it means upon the death of the Son. How fitting it is that we learn the ABCs of God's justice on the psalm that points to the death and resurrection of Christ. And so the Messiah is delivered from the grave. He's delivered from the gates of death, from Sheol. That word there from Sheol means simply the grave. But the same is not true for the wicked. Verses 17 to 20, they are cast down into the pit. 
Once again, the psalmist speaks of the judgment upon the nations and the deliverance of Israel. But again, the point is not an ethnic one. It is a religious one. I think this is important for us to recognize as we read through the psalms and it keeps using that language of affliction and oppression. And when the Bible speaks of such types of oppression, sometimes it comes in the form of economic exploitation by those in power. But more common, it is seen in the form of religious oppression, that the wicked act in such a way and with such power that they think they are gods. Look at the the prayer at verse 20. Lord, remind them that they are but men. Here, the wicked, the nations, uh, they, they revel in such wealth and such power that they think that they are immune to everything, that they are godlike in their power and they use it to trample the innocent and the poor underfoot, the righteous. The wicked are forgetful of God. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. They deny his existence and act as if he is not there and as if he will not judge And yet we see here in verse 17 that it is the wicked who shall return to the grave. Though they tried to send the Lord's Messiah and cast him into the pit, it is the Messiah who is lifted up from the gates of death, and it is the wicked who themselves go down. It's the picture of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel's preserved, he is led through death, lifted up, and yet those who sought to put him there are cast down. Who are the wicked? Again, the psalmist will continually use that phrase, the nations, but verse uh, 18, I'm sorry, verse 17, it spells it out more clearly that the wicked are those that forget God. This is uh, a religious tenor that he has. God will not forget those who seek him. But those who forget God, he will seek to blot out their names forever and ever. That their legacy will be lost in oblivion. And yet for the needy and the poor, for those who are forgotten, they are not forgotten to God. Though they might appear to be on the wrong side of history, as one commentator puts it, they will be vindicated on the last day. And the wicked who have put the righteous to death unjustly will be condemned. And so we see here in the last two verses, verses 19 and 20, the psalmist prays the same prayer that Moses prayed any time Israel would go out to battle. We spoke about this a few weeks ago because Solomon used that same language as we've been working our way through the Proverbs. That any time the nation would go out to war, the ark would be led forth, the ark of the covenant would go out, and the Lord or, or Moses would say, Arise, O God, let the nations be scattered. And here the psalmist prays that same prayer of Moses Arise, O Lord, stand as our divine warrior, come and plead our cause, advance and put the wicked to death. Look at their strength, look at their army, look at their size. Do not let them prevail. Put them in a state of terror. 
They act as though they are gods, remind them that they are just men, and they are to be held accountable to the one living and true God, though they do not worship him or acknowledge him as God. And so here in the psalm, we are given the basic components to understanding the justice of God in a fallen world. I think there are four things that we can take away from this, kind of briefly put, uh, again, to teach our kids, to again, to treat this like the ABCs of God's justice. The first thing that we're taught in the psalm is that God is just, and that he rules the world in justice. We do not serve a capricious God. We worship a God who is not blind to our afflictions. Here we worship a God who is not bribed nor can be bribed to overlook our sorrows. Here is a God who sees. Here is a God who cares. Here is a God who will act. Second thing that the psalm tells us is that when troubles arise, we must set our hope firmly on God as our great king who does all things justly. Isn't that what first Peter tells us? Christ himself did as he made his way to the cross. That when he was reviled, he did not spit back revilings in return. He did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges all things well. Will not the judge of all heaven and earth do what is right? The answer is yes, of course he will. There will come times when we think he does not hear, but his justice comes at the perfect time. It's something that the psalmist will bring into greater uh, focus in Psalm chapter 10. But here we should remind ourselves that if calamity strikes, it's not because God has forgotten or because he has not seen or as if uh, he was you know, uh, 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 off on some great journey or if he stopped caring. Calamity strikes. The Lord's delay in responding is intended for a purpose that we might be humbled under the cross, that we might know and experience what Christ himself underwent, that though he died in perfect obedience to the Father, the Lord delivered him not just from death, but through death. So great is the power of God that not even death will have the last word on that final day. We have the great hope of the resurrection from the dead, knowing that each and every one of us who have put our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ will be lifted up from the gates of death, even as the Son of God was raised from the dead. Not even death will have the last word. And on that day, God's grace will be made manifest for all the world to see when he vindicates the righteous and he condemns the wicked to all eternity. This brings us to our third, uh, I think, significant feature of the psalm, that ultimate justice will be fully rendered on the day of Christ's return. The wicked may escape judgment in this life, but they will not escape judgment in the next Vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord, so we are called to entrust ourselves to the Lord that he acts as judge and not us. Paul makes uh, reference to this particular psalm in Acts chapter 18 
or Acts 17, I'm sorry, when he says this, that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That man is the Lord Jesus Christ. And of this, God has given us this assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the demonstrable proof that God has appointed Christ to be the judge at the last day. That Christ is the one who will judge the whole world in righteousness. That the only way any of us can survive the scrutiny of the coming judgment comes by fleeing to him now as our refuge and stronghold. Because it's very easy uh, to think of all the times in which we have been wronged and to think about the ways in which we'll be vindicated, but the Lord is fully just and all the ways in which we have wronged others must be reckoned with as well. And so we're called to evaluate our own hearts in light of the cross, to flee to Christ as our refuge, to know that the judge of all the earth is the savior of mankind, that here is a way in which we can find pardon for our own sins and the wickedness that we ourselves have committed. John, in his apocalypse, also references this particular psalm in Revelation 19 when he says this, says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. This is Christ who is judging the world in righteousness. And these are the two things that he does, that in righteousness he judges and he makes war. The two very things that we see in the psalm, that the Lord sits enthroned as judge and he rises from his throne to scatter the wicked, to call them to account for the things that they have done. He arises to put the nations in a state of terror, verse 19. And it leads us to our final point. That we must be reminded that Christ as king does have a kingdom. A kingdom that does exist here presently on earth that is called to reflect the justice of God. That kingdom is not seen among the civilized kingdoms of the West or the East. It's not to find its headquarters in Rome or London, Moscow, Beijing, or even Washington, D.C., Rather, Christ's kingdom on earth is visibly seen in one place, and that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church should act differently than the world. Where we are not subject to the passing whims or changing fads of what constitutes real justice. I think it's so striking that for the past uh, several months and maybe the past two or three years, there's been an increased concern of what constitutes true justice. And I think the church should be concerned with these things, but we should not let the media tell us what constitutes what true and false justice is. Rather, we should drive ourselves continually over and over again to what Scripture says. Because here is a God who is seated on justice and he cares about it. And these are the very things that the Lord loves. And here we see true justice executed as the church is governed under that rule that never changes, which is the word of God. That the church should be a kingdom of grace, a safe haven for sinners to flee for refuge, to find mercy and rest from the coming judgment, to know that there is a way in which sins have been reckoned with, and that is at the cross of Christ. Uh, But if you fail to reckon with the cross, you will have to reckon with your own sins for eternity. 
And yet here in the kingdom of grace, here in the church, we are given that foretaste of the world to come, a world where righteousness and justice reigns. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would um, give us a love uh, for truth and a love for your goodness and your character and your justice. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.